Please open them up to Amos chapter 9, and we're going to go through the last five verses of Amos today, starting with verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. And they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amen. So, going through Amos, um, again, judgment after judgment after judgment. Almost nonstop until chapter 9, when a few verses ago we talked about a remnant. And then now it talks about, okay, that remnant, that's where the hope lies. It lies in what God is going to do with these people who have been remaining faithful to him. Um, And though they're still going to go through struggles, they're still going to go through that judgment as well. We see in the end there's hope. And that's the ultimate theme that we're going to see today. So let's go ahead. Verses 11 and 12. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So we begin this week with verses 11 and 12, and right away we see how the Lord is speaking through his prophet Amos about a particular day in the future. Um, As he says, in that day. When that day arrives, God will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And at this point, we do have a debate as to the word which the ESV, um, it translates as booth. And I'm not sure what your translations say there, but we're going to go over it for a second. This word can also be translated as succoth, um, which was a major city at a major crossroads in the Jordan Valley. As it is, some commentators believe that it should be booth, while others hold to succoth. Um, generally, as I consider it, uh, Succoth works best within context, since a booth is rarely described as um, needing multiple breaches repaired or raised up from the ruins. If Amos were to say, let's say, the house of David, then that would make more sense in context. But he doesn't say that. He says something else completely. And it sounds like a city that's fallen, not just a booth. Um, but that ben- then begs the question, what does Succoth have to do in context Well, we notice that it specifically says David's succoth, or the succoth of David. In that sense, it makes sense. David used succoth as an important headquarter for military campaigns, and it was from succoth that he conquered many of Israel's enemies to the south and the east. Unfortunately, it appears that succoth had been uh, seen better days by that time of Amos because it had been destroyed by Syria. Thus, when Amos described it as being repaired and rebuilt, as in the days of old, it reflects that time when it was an important city, especially to David. Commentators also note, however, that it does not necessarily mean succoth itself. The focus is on the fact that it's David's succoth. 
In that sense, it recognizes the reestablishment of David's Succoth to be a reestablishment of Israel's supremacy over her enemies. Edom, in particular, becomes a focus. Edom was one of the nations which has been harassing Judah and Israel. But it was also one in which Succoth would have been a major part of being involved with during the time of David's reign, because David would use Succoth to go ahead and attack Edom. Thus, in that day, Israel will possess a remnant of Edom, their enemies, because, again, this, this idea, this concept of being rebuilt. Yet it does not end with Edom, though. It instead continues on purposefully with all the nations who are called by my name. To be called by my name implies that God has lordship over them. That is, he has control over them. Israel will be restored to its former glory, and even more so, in the day of its restoration, will include a restoration for other nations with God. But as not to assume too greatly on the people, God makes it known that it is not their doing which allows them to be restored. Instead, it is the Lord who does this. He is the one who is in control. And he will raise up Israel to her glory even greater than its former glory under David. Now verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Amos then prophesies of the abundance which will come through this great restoration We see this as he prophesies to the coming days. We should notice that it is not a particular day like we saw earlier, but a period of time, because he uses that term again, days. It's a period, it's a long time. Unlike the judgment which comes, the restoration of the people will be a period of great blessing and abundance. We see this when Amos describes just how great the abundance will be. The plowman shall overtake the reaper, and that implies a great harvest. The plowman is the one who plows and plants the seed. The harvester is the one who comes and um, takes whatever the produce of the harvest when it reaches maturation. As such, there will be such an abundance that the plowman begins to plow over for a second harvest, and then they'll catch up to the harvester because the harvester hasn't gotten it all yet. Um, To yield... This kind of a yield will be so great that the first harvest will not even be gathered, is the point. It will be that much. This is then said further with the one who treads grapes and him who sows the seed. Again, the one who treads is the one who harvests the grapes while the sower plants the seed. There will be such plenty that they'll get in each other's way over and over again. It goes even further that the mountains shall, shall drip sweet wine. The hills were where the grapes were grown. Thus, the hills or the mountains to drip with this sweet wine is to express the reality of the abundance of the harvest. Ultimately, none will lack when the day finally comes. It will be so wonderful. And then verses 14 and 15. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This vision, this oracle, this proclamation concludes with great optimism. 
God will restore the fortunes of his people Israel. We notice that they will rebuild the cities and inhabit them. The implication is that the cities were destroyed by the wrath of God. Yet in this time they will be rebuilt and the people will inhabit them finally in great peace. This peace is further symbolized by the work. The people will plant vineyards and they will reap the reward of their work, drinking their wine or grape juice. This is not uh, this goes against the judgment set earlier in Amos, where we saw that the people will not drink the wine from their vineyards. This all changes, however, with the restoration of the people. Now they will. They get to reap it. Not only are they able to plant vineyards, but also make gardens. Again, the previous oracle against the people recognized that they would not taste the fruit of their garden. Someone else would. Now, however, after the restoration, they will again reap the harvest of their work and enjoy the fruit of their gardens. Ultimately, God will plant them on their land. Because it is God who plants them, the logical step is that they will never be uprooted. Though there is coming a time when they will be uprooted by God himself, though coming soon, There will come a time after that when God himself plants them. And in such a planning, they will never again leave the land that God has given to them. And this then ends the oracles of the Lord through his prophet Amos. So the main point of these last verses are to show the hope of the future for the nation of Israel. Though God will cause a sifting of the people, and judgment is going to come upon the people... Ultimately, there will be a come a time of great redemption for those who are faithful to him. The harvest will be great, with enough plenty for all the people to enjoy. Ultimately, though, the land will be marred by judgment, but God, he will be gracious, returning the people to their land to be uprooted no more. Now, what are some applications we can come from this? Well, the first is the sovereignty and the grace of God. And that's been one of the key themes throughout Amos, the sovereignty of God. We have seen it in many facets, in many ways. Now, however, we see it in a different light. Whereas the majority of the sovereignty of God focused on his judgment, now the focus is on his blessing. There are four ways in particular that we see how God is sovereign over the people. The first is in verse 12, after we consider the reestablishment of Israel's supremacy via the reestablishment of David's succoth. We find that it is not the people who cause this reestablishment to take place. Instead, it is the work of the Lord. Indeed, verse 12 reflects on this when it says, declares the Lord who does this. Thus, it is not the greatness of the people which allows them to succeed in being reestablished. It is God himself who raises them back up as if from the dead. This rebuilding, however, is not the only place we see the sovereignty of God at work. We also see it in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 begins with, I will restore the fortunes of my people. This is the second way we see the sovereignty of God, as we see God is the active agent. When it comes to the restoration, the people themselves are not receiving it because of how great they are, but because of the grace of God on them. And being sovereign, he will restore them to what they once had and even give them more. That leads to the third way, and that is how God will plant them in their land. 
We can see the logical consequence of God being the one who plants them in their land, and that is that they will never be uprooted. Once God has purposefully planted, then we can be sure that it will remain rooted. If the people were to plant themselves, then there would be a way for them to be uprooted because they are, by definition, not God. To plant oneself, then, leads to the possibility and the likelihood of being uprooted. While being planted by God leads to the impossibility of being uprooted. And we can see that in so many different ways in our lives um, when I think about that. The final way we see the sovereignty of God is through the last verse. And that is on the simple fact that the land which they possess is given to them by God. God has allotted it to them. It is not that they are deserving of it. Instead, it is given to them as a gift. There are so many applications to this when we think about it. When we consider uh, the rebuilding of God, is it not the same with us? Are we not ravaged and torn asunder by the power of sin in our lives? Are we not like defiled temples in sin, desperately in need of being cleansed, like the high priest would do during Yom Kippur? Indeed, the sovereignty of God in our lives as he rebuilds us, is seen in us daily as we consider the new creation God is making us to be. When we consider the way in which the abundance flows, do we also not enjoy the abundance of God's grace and mercy through the cross? We may not have vineyards and gardens, as some of us do. Um, Maybe not vineyards, but, you know, farms. Which are in seemingly continual harvest. But... The harvest of God is within us. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, understanding. Do we not see in our own lives, given to us through God's sovereignty in our lives, and again by His indelible grace, this harvest within us? What if we considered being planted? How easily the storms of life could ruin us if we were planted on the sand rather than on the rock. Is Christ not the one on whom we are planted? And is that planning not eternal? Does that which Christ grasp ever get uprooted? Does Christ ever lose even one who has been given to him? He says no in John. So no, he doesn't. His hands are far too strong to let us go. It is even seen When we come to the gift of the land, their inheritance, we too have been given a gift, and that gift is faith in Christ. Paul tells us in Romans and Ephesians that faith itself is given to us as a gift, so that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This gift of faith then leads to our eternal inheritance in Christ. In all of these things, we see the words spoken through Amos are seen in us. One of the great mysteries of the New Testament is the reality that the coming of the kingdom through Christ is both here, but it's also not yet. The same is said of the prophet Amos and his prophecies concerning what we have seen today. We see how God does all of these things within the believer. He enacts these things in the believer and he grants these things to the believer by his sovereign grace. It is on those last two words which we cling to in this present age. And that is again his sovereign grace. 
Our God is a sovereign God. He is a ruler, the king, and it is through him that both judgments and blessings come forth. If we have any hope to stand, it is by his hand. Just as it was with the Israelites. It is God who does these things. It is God who rebuilds, who brings blessings, who brings abundance, and who plants. He does this because he is sovereign, and just as he was sovereign over the people of the time of Amos, so too is he sovereign over our world today, granting this world blessings and judgments according to his will. Be encouraged, then, to cling to the sovereignty of God which is seen in Amos, and which is revealed further through the great grace given to those who are in Christ. For as we consider ourselves, our predicament and our lives, we can see how God guides us along the road. Just as he led the Israelites in the desert with a fire and with a cloud, so he leads us through his Son and his Spirit, guiding us ever forward through the fulfillment of his promise. And that's the second thing that comes to mind. Fulfillment. Um, Something we can see today in today's text is how eschatological it is. Eschatology means the study of last things or final things. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, last. Normally, when people think about eschatology, we think of the book of Revelation. That's That's the book we think of, naturally, Revelation. In that sense, many agree that Revelation is dealing with end times in one capacity or another. Now, something we consider from Amos, though, is that much of the prophecy seems to have been fulfilled. When it comes to the sifting of the people, for example, one could argue that that occurred in 538 B.C., when the people returned to the land after being exiled by Babylon. Yet, that generation, while significant, did not see the fulfillment of all the elements of the prophecy which we saw today. Yet, the fulfillment of the prophecy can be found even after, for it was from that sifting from those who came through and resettled the land and rebuilt, there came someone else, and that's Christ. Through Christ has come the new kingdom, a new people, who are neither Jew nor Gentile, but all one under Christ. Through him there is a harvest which grows endlessly, being planted by God. So it is, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy can be found in the people, But it leads even further to Christ and to those who are in Christ. For those who are in Christ receive the blessings which were promised. We might recognize this even further when we consider the New Testament in Galatians, when Paul writes that those who follow the rule, that is, follow after Christ, and follow his guidance and his his teachings, are the Israel of God. It was then we recognized that the Israel of God are those who belong to God through especially faith. Likewise, it is further established when we consider how James quotes 11 and 12 of this passage in Amos when describing the good news that the Gentiles are being included in the kingdom in Acts 15. He recognized that the coming of Christ and the welcoming of the Gentiles into the kingdom was a representation of those who are the remnants of Edom, the enemies of God, who are no longer enemies, but who belong to the true Israel of God. So again, when we consider the reality of the church and how we belong to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we can see that the fulfillment of these verses has begun to take place. 
In fact, their previous point all deals with the many fulfillments in which we see in our everyday lives, especially if we are willing to see it being fulfilled. Yet there is the continued truth that though the fulfillment has begun to take place, it has not reached its completion as of yet. Simply put, not all the nations have come together under his control, that is Christ. Likewise, Christ has not returned, allowing for the greater, fuller fulfillment to take place. When Christ returns, all things will be made new, and we shall receive the inheritance which we see only glimpses of now. Indeed, this is a further truth of it. The promises are being fulfilled daily. The prophecy is being fulfilled daily. And each individual and corporate members of the church. But do you know what the miraculous thing is? That the greatest blessings which we receive here in our present state is but a foretaste of the great bounty which is still to come. As we consider it, we might find that these prophecies are a fitting conclusion to the book of Amos. Throughout his prophetic ministry, he has been calling the people back to God. He has been pleading, rebuking. He's called out their sins in hope of their redemption. Ultimately, though, the Lord makes it clear that the only redemption which can be found will be by his own hands. The only restoration will come by the hand of God himself. The way that this is ultimately seen is through Christ. He is the one whom the great restoration takes place. It is through him that there is a planting, and it is by him we receive the great gift which has been given. Yet even in all this, it is only a glimpse, only a glimmer of what there remains to be seen for those who are in Christ. Sometimes we can get bogged down by this world. Uh, As we live in a world of both darkness and light, we can easily get discouraged by what we see, what we hear, what we feel, and in all reality, what we experience with the breaking down of appliances or breaking down of cars or work in general. (laughs) It is in times like these we need to remember these prophecies which end in such hope for the people. For those who are in Christ are those whom the prophecies were really uttered for. For those who are in Christ who remain in the faith are those who receive the abundance. And abundance which has already begun, but an abundance which we have not even really begun to harvest. So it is, be encouraged by these words from Amos. There is coming a time when all the abundance which is promised will be given. For now we relish in what has already been given, and we consider the new life in Christ, the change which comes to our hearts, our minds, and our bodies through the redemption of Jesus. When we consider all of his gifts to us here and now, we remember that these are but samplings of what is to come. This all does not end here. This is merely the beginning. Cherish all these things that are in the beginning of being made new day by day and rejoice in the Lord of redemption and reconciliation knowing that we have been redeemed and we have been reconciled through Christ here and now 
And because of that, we have a future filled with hope. Though we have dark nights, we have no reason to believe that the darkness will not fade away to a bright and new dawn before our God in peace. We have no reason to believe that the darkness will not flee from the bright and new dawn which will be fulfilled in full through Christ. So during the stormy nights, remember the dawn is coming, and with it comes the light which chases away even the darkest of nights. For even in our dark nights here, we see the glimmer of the coming dawn beginning to chase away the shadows of the night, and that the fulfillment of the promise has begun, and these blessings are only the beginning. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is what gives us our hope and our future. It is through Jesus we are able to stand firm on the solid ground. Likewise, it is through the gospel which we recognize that all that which we have received is given to us by God's grace. We rely and depend on the grace of God to lead us, just as it led the people in the time of Amos who are dependent upon the grace of God for all the promises which he made to be fulfilled. So we know the promise, and we have the promise within us. And it is through the gospel which this promise has come and takes root within each and every one of us to a full abundance in our lives. This gospel begins with our origins. God created the entire cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. And being his image bearers, we share similar attributes with God, though not fully the way he does. But because God is a God of love, reason knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows Hesed, his covenantal loving kindness, we can as well toward each other and then back toward God. Likewise, it is from this we understand that this, uh, there is both dignity and sanctity and worth to all human life. Yet like God, we are able to choose. We could have chosen to follow God in obedience in life or disobedience into sin and death. Humanity chose the latter and has continued to do this ever since. And because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. And we see it every day. It is also because of this we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt against us each day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before God. Despite all this sorrow and all the darkness that comes from human freedom, God did not give up on humanity. Instead, we find that he had a scheme, a plan, all along to save us from the darkness. And this scheme, this plan, involves sending his light and his word into our darkness. And that was his son, Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of his life and death and resurrection we find propitiation from our sins. We find both justification being made right with God and sanctification being made new by God by his victory on the cross. We are given his spirit which guides our steps. All because of what Christ has done, this is possible. And so that means that there's only... Two things that is required of us. 
The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. Our lifestyles are to change, falling in step with the scriptures, with Christ himself, and the spirit who indwells us, and all of this for the glory of God in love. The second is faith in Christ. We recognize our complete dependence upon the Son of God for salvation, recognizing that apart from Christ, our greatest deeds are as filthy rags. We recognize that we can never do enough good to attain this righteousness. Christ, however, is strong enough to save us and to bring us into righteousness and to justify us before our God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If one is disobedient in these things, there is only death. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand, because his own deeds will show only his guilt. Therefore, the disobedient will find themselves before a judge guilty of all their sins, and because of this, they will face the wrath of God. For those who are obedient, however, there is life. Their relationships with God themselves, each other, and the world are being redeemed day by day. They can experience victory over sin in this life, not perfectly, but to no longer um, have sin be the absolute rule in their life. Ultimately, they will find that they are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom. Well, they will experience the love of God for forevermore. As we reflect on the final verses of Amos, let us remember to continue to have hope, knowing that the current state will pass. Let us remember that the future is bright for those who are in Christ, and that all the blessings given to us are at best a foretaste of the abundance of God's great blessing on those who are in Christ. There is so much more to come. Make ready for the day which God's sovereign grace leads us to, a day when the scales fall off and we can see clearly the God who has given us this inheritance as a gift of grace. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, As we consider the prophet Amos, we see a man who is willing to sacrifice so much to proclaim the truth. And Lord, in that truth, we recognize that there is both judgment, but there is also mercy. That there is judgment, but there is also grace. And that ultimately there is blessing. We are the inheritors, Lord, of the blessing which you have promised. So let us continue to live for you. Let us continue to see the blessings all around us and then to realize that this is only the beginning and that you have so much more that you're going to give to us by your grace. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing Amazing Grace.